Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 59. The last episode, we left off with the Batavians trying to set up a formal long-term administration that was rooted inside the Cape rather than in Europe. Unfortunately, their tenure was going to be short. International events were conspiring to upset this plan. With the renewal of the war between the English and the French, old enemies with a propensity for bloodletting, While the Cape was safe from immediate attack by the English until 1805, the effect of a world war could not be escaped. Some would feel the effects less than others, and these, some, were living in the area we now call Zululand. It's not generally well known, but African monarchy of various forms is an ancient institution on the continent. There were the Negus of Ethiopia, the Kayabazinga of Busoga, the Monumutapa of Mutapa, whom we've heard about already. The Nguyenyana of Swaziland, the Mabongo of Matamba, the Ngola of Ndongo, the Alafin of Oyo, Obosu of Dahomey, the Emir of Ilorin, the Sarki of Kano, the Sultan of Sokotu, and the Bay of Tunis. Mostly male, often the societies would be led by women of exceptional power despite the patriarchies. Power was localized in the form of chiefs. The paramount chief ruled more widely, although those on the periphery of his power would likely vacillate more than those in the centre. The most powerful of these leaders would be called king, ruling over a large territory in a centralised state and commanding an army. The tradition of this type of ruler in Africa is ancient. Found in Upper Egypt, for example, at the time of Narma, who conquered most of the Nile Valley just after 3000 BC, he predated the pharaohs. The Nubia ruled south of Egypt, commanding the successive kingdoms of Kerma, Kush and Meru, and who performed the rituals of the pharaoh between 1750 BC and 350 AD. That's an extraordinarily long period. By AD 700, other African monarchies were rooted across the grazing lands that border the Sahara and extended to the Niger River, lasting until the 16th century. Ghana, Mali and Songhai had a long tradition, and museums compete for ancient relics from these civilizations. East of these were the Kanembonu, to the south kingdoms that emerged during the Middle Ages in Europe, such as the Congo and Ndongo, the latter of northern Angola. In the 1100s, as you know, because we spoke about this in earlier podcasts, there was the kingdom of Zimbabwe, which was subsumed by the Mutapa kingdom. However, further south in southern Africa, these forms of monarchical centralized kingdoms appeared far later, only by the last half of the 18th century. We've also heard about these and how the Ndwandwe and Mtetwa, for example, emerged and the reasons why. Resources diminishing, outside world impinging, trade increasing, climate changing. For the Zulu, King Gridwell Zwelatini, who passed away in 2021, was only the eighth Zulu monarch since the kingdom formally began in 1816. By the standards of the Matkosa, they are newcomers on the southern African felt. Just compare this to other African kings, such as Utomfu Nanaosei, the second of the Asante, modern-day Ghana. He is the 16th Asatehani of a kingdom founded in 1701. Ronald the II is the 36th Kabaka of Buganda in Uganda, and that line was first initiated by his ancestor Kato Kinto in the first years of the 1300s. That's more than 700 years of kingliness. The Amazulu are toddlers at this monarchy business. Think about it. Ewiari II, the 39th Oba of Benin in Nigeria, his line goes back to Iweka I in the late 1100s. But what is deceptive is that these ancient lines were not always powerful, whereas for the Amazulu, 
Shaka kicked off a long list of very powerful relatives who succeeded each other to the present. In every African kingdom I've mentioned, the tradition is preserved of the origin of the ruling party to assert their claim through a single descent line. In Shaka's case, however, there is a problem, as you're going to hear. Because we only have oral history to go on before the first missionaries arrived in Natal to begin writing down the genealogy, dating and names are extremely difficult to ascertain. By 1929, for example, there were 11 different versions of the earliest forms of pre-Shaka Zulu rule, but by 1996, Zulu historian M.Z. Shamasi published what he said was the most accurate version. So as you can see, saying too much about the period prior to the early 1800s becomes an exercise in compressed storytelling. This can be exciting, but dangerous. It's hopeless speculation. Still, with that as a warning, this is what we do know. Senzangakona was the father of Shaka, and his father was Jama, and his great-grandfather was Ndaba. Before Ndaba, oral tradition takes over from oral history, as John Laban points out, and various royal genealogies surface. Academic Pixley Seme said in 1925 that the line of descent of Senzangakona goes very far back in the history of the Zulu country until it merges with the fables, or in Zulu the Izinganikwani. The existing lineage is somewhat problematic because Shaka never had children, so the idea of a single line of descent by blood, the ancient African way, is already, shall we say, somewhat murky. King Zuelatini, for example, was directly descended from Shaka's half-brother Mpande, so the royal house of Shaka should really be called the royal house of Senzangakona. But Shaka's name has a certain brevity and ring to it, does it not? It's not just the European historians who fixate on his name, you know. Try and discuss this with any Zululand citizen and see how far you get. Don't shout at me, folks. This is a series that's trying to deliver direct historical blows rather than quaint emotional propaganda. And you're going to hear a lot more that may make you revise what you think is part of our past. As Labant and that great Zulu war storyteller David Rattray have said, on the day that the Amazulu crushed the British army at Isantlawan, in 1879, the Zulu commander Ntingwayo Kamaholi sang the praises of both Senzangakona and Shaka. There, in the gathering dusk in northern Zululand, he held his great war shield aloft, shook it and shouted to the Zulu warriors, the Amabutu, This is the Intando of our people. You are always asking why this person, Shaka, is loved so much. It is caused by the Intando of our people. Intando means the will or the power of choice. But its secondary meaning is love charm. And both meanings apply to the war shield beloved of Jacob Zuma and his followers. And they trot along the tar road to Nkantla regularly sporting their war shields for a deeply felt reason. Zuma likes to reinforce this sentiment even though he is not a king. You see, the war shield belongs to the king. Each one is owned by the king. And furthermore, these isitlangu, are of great cultural meaning. The Amabuta would beg shields from the king and when obtained, they could not be stored at home. No, they would be kept at the Amakanda, the great place, distributed when the Amabuta mustered for war. Holding the shield meant the warrior by default belonged to the king. These shields would be cut from the hide of one of the kingdom's wealth, their cattle. It was a one-to-one conversion. One important cow, one shield. And the Isitlangu was cut from different coloured skins depending on the regiment, but more about that later. What we must keep in mind is the link between the Isitlangu and the Amadlozi, the ancestors, or to be more specific, 
the ancestor called Shaka. Praise singers, celebrate him by singing, The nations he hath all destroyed, whither shall he now attack? He defeats kings, whither shall he now attack? The nations he hath all destroyed, whither shall he now attack? He he he, whither shall he now attack? As you can tell, there is a lot of attacking and destroying going on, and yet, while all of this praise poetry is going on, the history of Shaka is pretty shallow when it comes to facts about his early life. Some of the writings are artistic license gone mad, compounded by the self-serving trader hunters who met him in the first two decades of the 19th century. One story after another of savagery, brutality and violence, while people like Jacob Zuma misused this allegory as a form of political cudgel to beat South Africa with in the 21st century. The challenge is nothing was written down by Zulu historians themselves until the end of the 19th century. Before then, settlers collected stories and wrote those down. As the recorded oral testimony was collected in the late 19th and early 20th century, very old Zulu men and women appeared to borrow from legend, turning spin into truth. Distant childhood memories are shaky at best, particularly when these sources were repeating what their parents had told them. So the first problem is we don't know when Shankar was born. That is a fairly significant challenge to any history. Most believe it was in 1787, but some think it was 1782. However, we do know that Shankar was definitely the son of Senzangakona Kajama, the chief of a tiny Zulu kingdom in the valley of the White Mfulosi River. We know a little more about Senzangakona, that he was handsome, high-spirited, strong. The Izibongos say that, when he lay down, he was like the rivers. When he got up, he was like mountains, whose body was beautiful, whose face had no blemish, whose eyes had no blemish, whose mouth had no blemish. For the Izibongo then, Senzangakona is a flood of superlatives. He had 18 sons and 15 wives, whereas Shaka had no sons, no daughters. He was bereft of offspring. For people fixated in the power of bloodlines, this is a bit of a PR problem. Then there is the prickly question of how Shaka came to be born. Many thousands of words have been written about Shaka's early life, which of course has involved a thumb and much imaginative sucking. The reason why we must concentrate on what we know happened versus what dramatic renderings tell us happened is because of the importance of chieftainship in the traditions of the Bantu-speaking people. For the last 1500 years, the Nguni in South Africa have been living under some form of chieftainship where the authority is derived by royal lineage. Their power is linked to this lineage, this line of blood. Being a blood royal is the difference between being an upstart to being real. In some parts of southern Africa, the line can be matriarchal. The reign queen of the Balobedu, for example. The Amazulu are firmly patriarchal, and this is where Shaka's story gets really interesting. Oral tradition has it that when Senzangakona was a youngster at the beginning of his reign, he had a natural son already, perhaps two years old, as he was being installed. And the mother of his son was Nandi, the daughter of Mbengi Kamatlongo, chief of the Langeni tribe. Oral rendering, the time of Tetuayo in 1879, said his name was Shaka with a C, which means bastard. This little Shaka was born on the north bank of the Mklatuzi River near Kwantoza Mountain. That has a warm place in my heart, because on a good day from where I lived in Enkwaleni in the Amplatuzi Valley, we could see Kwanatoza Mountain. Nandi's mother was Mfunda, sister of Pakatwayo, the chief of the Kwabe, who was going to lead Shanka a merry dance later. He was what some have called a formidable foe. 
There is a beetle called an injaka, which causes intestinal problems and your stomach to swell. But the expression also applies to a girl who becomes pregnant before marriage. She is known as an itchaka. The baby when born could also be called itchaka. This was mentioned particularly by those opposed to Shaka later, who said he was illegitimate and should never have been made king. Nandi means sweet, although oral tradition suggests she was anything but and the stories paint her as an evil woman, sexually frigid and bad-tempered. She was also called dark-skinned, big and strongly built, with small breasts. As usual in these things, we don't have a photograph, and the description itself is problematical, though later written history pretty much records a similar description. The reason why I'm concentrating on looks is because Amazulu tradition is steeped in colour coding. A man could be forced to recognize his illegitimate offspring by the tone of the child's skin, and Amazulu oral history tellers are clear about this, as faintly odious as it may appear. Kechwayo's nephew, who swore by his history, believed that Nandi remained at her father's house, while Shaka grew up at Senzangakona's Umuzi. She was shamed and eventually left to marry Ngendeyane of the Kabe. He was well respected. Some have whispered that Nandi entered his Umizi as part of his Izigodlo, as a concubine until Senzangakona could claim her. She promptly had a son called Ngwadi by the old man Ngendeyan, and this is where the paternity debate kicks off, and it's colour-coded. That's because Nandi also had a daughter called Nontroba, who was the very opposite of Ngwadi. She was light-skinned, short and good-tempered and very fat, say the oral tellers. Her little nose was small and similar in shape to Shaka's, we told. Just to really confuse the lineage experts, later tradition had it that Ngwadi was not Ngindiana's son, but Senzangakona's. This means Ngwadi could have been Shaka's half-brother, and as we continue telling the story, that's going to become more important as lineage issues heat up in the already extremely hot and humid Zululand. Poor little Shaka, by the time he was in his mid-teens, somewhere around his 16th birthday, he was becoming troublesome. He was extremely strong and strong-minded too. So in 1802, Senzanga decided to kill him. Shaka got wind of the plan and fled to Jobi Kakai, the Ngozi of the powerful Mtetwa people, who we've heard about previously. They lived between the White Umfolozi and the Mplatuzi rivers and were beginning to threaten Senzanga rule. As you'll hear in a podcast or three, the youngster called Shaka was going to cover himself in glory as he fought alongside Dingazwao, the chief of the Mtetwa, who was installed as their leader after his father, Jobe, died in 1807. Right now, we must return to the Cape, where all manner of world events were catching up to the Batavians. First, what to do about the Khoikhoi? When we left off, Governor Janssens and London Missionary Society head van der Kemp were at each other's throats about evangelical action. The missionaries wanted to save the Khoikhoi souls, the Batavians wanted to save the fragile economy, and the Khoikhoi slaves were crucial. Van de Kemp was not against the use of Khoi as labourers. His vision was one where the poor served the wealthy, but he was against the Batavians who were gradually helping to restore the forced labour system of the Boers. That meant no education and therefore no conversions. The Khoikhoi were doomed to least benefit from the white presence in southern Africa. Three centuries of disgust and contempt weighed upon the Khoikhoi. The Amakosa, on the other hand, fitted the Batavian sense of the human scale. The Khoza were what were regarded as the elite of the land. 
Sitting in his Utenag hut, the new Landrost Ludwig Alberti grappled with this contradiction. To judge whether the true happiness of a savage, or rather a semi-savage people, is really promoted by civilization or not might probably be found difficult. He rambled. In their semi-savage state, the Tosa are completely satisfied with their peaceful pastoral life. Their extremely limited requirements are easily satisfied, and everyone detects cheerfulness and good humor, the surest evidence of contentment, he continued. To propose changing this fortunate state of things could, in spite of the best intentions, quite possibly result in cruelty. Is the civilizing of the blacks advisable or not? So many resonances in these few sentences. This view would be repeated for the next 200 years. Apartheid's fundamental premise was based on this philosophy. Back in 1803, though, Janssens had a plan. He suggested that the Amakosa youth, particularly the sons of chiefs, be taken to Cape Town for tuition in the use of various manual occupations and especially those relating to agriculture apart from moral upbringing. Then they would be sent back to their people in a kind of cultural pandemic to spread the useful knowledge and give what Janssen's called a gentle beneficial influence over these people as a whole. This would of course cut the troublesome missionaries out of the civilizing equation. I would hope in the interest of both parties that this serious transaction be conducted with the greatest care and that at all events no European missionary societies whose efforts are aimed at the so-called conversion of heathens be entrusted to it. Alberti and Utenegg also believed most missionaries were from what he called the lower classes of Europe and said they were causing confusion in the minds of the Amakosa and Khoikhoi disciples, who he believed could not assimilate complex religious concepts. They are spiteful enough and often more dangerous than useful, concluded the Landros of Judenhaeg about the missionaries of the LMS. Meanwhile, in the seas off Western Europe, in the Mediterranean and across the Atlantic Ocean, Admirals Nelson and Villeneuve were moving inexorably towards their heroic resolution of who had maritime supremacy. The fleets shifted between the western Mediterranean, Martinique in the Caribbean, and off the coast of Spain, while Napoleon prepared his great invasion of Britain. Suddenly, the Cape re-entered the drama. In July 1805, English Secretary of State for the War and Colonial Departments, Lord Castlereagh, picked up new intel that France was seeking to seize the Cape. That's despite their vassal state Batavia holding it, clearly little trust there between allies. So the English ordered an expeditionary force to sail to the Cape, all preparation done in great secret. When it eventually sailed in August 1805, there were 61 ships under the command of Commodore Sir Home Bopham, carrying 7,000 troops under the command of General Sir David Baird. Since the British last held the Cape, only two years earlier, things had changed in the world. The Americans were beginning to eye the eastern trade, and having just fought a war of independence, the English were nervous about that. A second factor was that the British were now focusing much of their energy again on South America. The loss of the North American colonies had drawn London back to the south, particularly around River Plate, or what would become Argentina. The Americans were also displaying what Mostat calls a disagreeable mercantile aggression. So South America was a door to commerce, and the idea of a new triangular trade emerged. No more merchandise from Europe to Africa, then slaves to the West Indies, and finally sugar back to Europe. No, the new triangular trade would lead to Britain, the Far East, 
and South America pivoting upon Cape Town. A tiny but beautiful backwater was suddenly thrown up as a major strategic location once more. After 1783, the British became increasingly alarmed by the penetration of its eastern trade by American ships. The Cape was also a halfway house for the United States, and its whaling ships and even slave vessels were rounding the tip of Africa. At this stage, Deligoa Bay was becoming important to the Americans too. In 1796, an American ship called Hercules had been wrecked on the shores of the Zoofield, and the Bostonian captain, Benjamin Stout, who eventually got home, was so impressed by the possibilities of the Eastern Cape and the Amakosa that he suggested setting up an American colony there. Captain Stout had written to President John Adams in Washington in 1801, suggesting that this part of South Africa was open to what he called American adventure. Before Adams had a chance to consider what type of adventure it would be, imagine Americans colonizing the Cape in 1805, I mean, who knew? Commodore Popham's fleet arrived off the Cape early in the new year of January 1806. Things weren't going to go swimmingly at first, literally, as 36 of the men of the 93rd Regiment would drown in the first wave onto the beach one Sunday morning because they couldn't swim. Their boat capsized, and apparently they went down cheering as they sank. At least that was according to Captain John Graham of the 93rd Regiment. We're going to hear a lot more about Captain Graham. He would become one of the most hated colonists ever to set foot in South Africa when he instituted what he said was a proper degree of terror to drive the Amakosa out of the Zoofelt by adopting a scorched-earth policy. He also founded Grahamstown, which is now called Makanda. But more about all of this later. Right now, we must stop and outspan the oxen and light a fire. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. To contact me, you can head off to my website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com or direct message me on Twitter, my handle at deslatham. Until next, au revoir.